right, you may be seated. And let's go to prayer. Father God, this morning, we thank you for being the God who hears and answers our prayers. We praise you because you are unchangeable. And as the scripture teaches us, you are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And because you are unchanging, the promises that we find in scripture will forever be true. They find their yes and their amen in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know from Christ's conversation with the woman at the well that there is a fountain of living water and that anyone who is thirsty can drink freely from it. Father, we come to you thirsty this morning. We desire the living water that comes through Jesus Christ. Help us to always desire the good things that you have for us and to reject the things this world has to offer. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter one, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we may know the hope that you have called us to. We ask father for an understanding of your peace, particularly as we begin what is certain to be an extremely tumultuous week. Our nation is on the eve of another presidential election and this one has been particularly divisive fracturing the people of our nation into groups that are often openly hostile to each other. This is even true of people who are your children. And Father, we pray for unity in our nation. We pray for protection over our elected officials and for protection over those who are tasked with protecting them. More importantly, Father, we pray that the, go that the truth of the gospel would go out into this darkness. We have seen some very ugly things take place over the past few months, and there is fear that many more ugly things will take place. Father, use the people who are called by your name to help bring the message of Jesus Christ to those people who are hurting. We know that we are citizens of your kingdom, but we currently reside here. Let us seek the welfare of this place. And Father, we thank you that one of the key ways that you're using to spread the gospel is through healthy local churches. We praise you that there are men being raised up to begin new churches. This morning, we pray specifically for Cody Snyder, the church planter from Hamilton Baptist who is working to begin Lovettsville Baptist Church. We pray for him and his family and for the families that will join them as they begin this work of bringing the gospel to the Lovettsville area. Protect them, keep them focused on you, and meet all of their needs, both physically and spiritually. And Father, we also pray for our brother and sister, Zach and Rachel Robinson. I know that many of us, myself included, miss them dearly, but we are thankful that you have called them to Louisville for continued ministry preparation. We pray that you keep them healthy, especially with the stress that comes from juggling studies, family, and work responsibilities. Father God, we long for Christ's return. We look to the horizon in anticipation of Jesus's appearing. But while we wait, help us to not become complacent. Help us to diligently search the scriptures and delight in the truth that they hold. Move us to share the truth of the gospel to those around us who are not believers so that they may be saved. Your coming is something exciting for us, but it is going to be dreadful for them 
because your wrath is a dreadful thing. Remind us that no matter how dark things around us may become, our satisfaction is found in you and our hope is found in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in life and in death. Prepare our hearts and our mind for the preaching of your word. Sanctify us in truth because your word is truth. We ask all this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. And as you do, a reminder that Tuesday, Tuesday evening, we will begin a six-week uh, class online covering the overarching story of the Bible. So the, the big picture of the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation in six weeks, um, no homework uh, ahead of time, uh, no uh, prerequisites to attend. Um, just sign up and um, do so. You can find information on our Facebook page, I think both public and private. You can find it in the weekly email. If you can't find it there, please email me. My information is on uh, the website. Uh, and we will be happy to register you and be able to pass along the link uh, for Zoom um, that we'll be using for that class. Um, be honest with the classes shouldn't last any more than an hour. We're trying to do it so after your uh, kids go to bed or you can kind of put them down and then come and be a part of it. Um, and so we're looking forward to that this week. Now today or this weekend, last couple days, is actually a very significant date in church history. Uh, as on the evening of October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the church of Wittenberg. It's 95 things that he thought could help tidy up the church, uh, make her uh, more healthy, if you will. Um, and so he nailed these things to the door that evening, expecting them to be found the next morning, um, November 1st, which was a, a holiday in the Catholic Church of All Saints Day. And, and so he wasn't looking to start a reformation. He wasn't looking um, to go up there and just nail these things up there in anger. He was, he was looking to tidy up the church, to, to clean up the church. After a recent trip to Rome and seeing the marketplace that it had become, he was concerned. Well, after nailing those things to the wall, he quickly learned that the church didn't want to be tidied up began to receive pushback, pushback uh, that really pushed back on and threatened his life, also forced him, though, to intensify his study of God's Word, to, to really solidify what is it that I believe, what is it that the Word of God says, wasn't content to rely on tradition, uh, church tradition as his source of truth, wanted to know what does God's Word have to say. And it's from this time in his study that he would later, this is over a couple year period of time, would recover what is now referred to and known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification referring to the sinner being declared right or righteous before God, the judge of heaven and, and earth. And faith alone referring not to something we do to obtain this righteousness, but the posture by which we receive it, a humble posture of, of simply accepting, receiving, believing Christ and Christ alone to be our only hope in life and in death. So no works at all. 
which flew and still flies completely counter to the Catholic Church's means of administering God's grace through sacraments and confession and indulgences. And so unbeknownst to to Martin Luther in that moment, he set off a, a chain reaction that would literally change the world forever. I mean, even the fact that we are gathered together in this capacity today is a result of events that happened all the way back then and the ones that followed. But if history has taught us anything, it's that the fight for the doctrine of justification by faith alone has not ended. It is a fight that we are still very much fighting today, the continual temptation to add something to the gospel put some addition, some requirement in addition to faith as a prerequisite to salvation, that that we would bring something of works to the table. Now think about our, our current context, our current cultural climate. I've heard people on both sides of the political aisle in recent weeks say, you can't be a Christian and vote for this or that candidate. Now, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't think biblically when it comes to elections. We, we should. We must. We'll look at that more in a moment. But to say you can't be a Christian and vote for this or that candidate is simply saying something the Bible does not say. It's making a prerequisite to salvation based on how one votes, and that's not biblical because Jesus isn't on the ballot. And there can be countless nuances here that we have to understand behind why someone would choose to vote the, the way they do. It, it's not always cut and dry. It's not black and white. It's not as simple as we always want to make it. There are some things that are simple and there's other things that are not. So while this election is very much important, it's not most important. This doctrine is most important. Can't get this wrong. Because spiritual life and death literally hang in the balance. Literally are on the line with this doctrine. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So for those who have been with us for any length of time, today's question is a familiar one in the life of our church. You've been around here any length of time. It's a question that we have asked, I have asked over the period of the last four years. How are we saved? And church, what's our response to this question? How are we saved? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Ah, beautiful question with a beautiful response. And it's this question and it's this response that we're taking a closer look at today. I don't want to take it for granted, even though we have said it over and over and over again over the course of the last several years, that we are all understanding what this means with clarity. Like, what do we really mean by grace alone? What is really meant by faith alone, in Christ alone? Even what's meant by when we say the word saved? 
Like you think about that. For any of us who grew up in a church culture, you grew up understanding kind of like without context, without needed clarity. Like, okay, I understand what this means. But we're living within a culture where you ask somebody today, like, hey, do you want to be saved? They're like looking over their shoulder, like, saved from what? Like, what are you talking about? While we're referring to, biblically speaking, that are you saved from the judgment of God, the wrath of God that we deserve? We looked at this last week, the biblical understanding that all people are are born not good, but enemies of God, born dead in our sin, Not kind of dead, not sort of dead, not mostly dead. Like dead in our sin, which brings about the natural question again. Okay, how are we saved? How are we saved? How are we made alive in Christ? Well, I believe our our text today answers this question in three parts. So number one, we are not saved by works. End of verse 8 and start of verse 9. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. I love the clarity that is there. Meaning our salvation has nothing to do with who we are as a person. Or anything that we do. So voting or otherwise. Our salvation is not merited in any way. It is simply the gift of God. It's a gift of God to those he chose and predestined as sons and daughters before the foundation of the world. So as you can imagine, Luther goes to Rome. He sees people selling indulgences. An indulgence in the Catholic Church being a means of lessening one's punishment before God. So you pray a certain prayer, you visit a certain place, you you do any number of specific good works, and your punishment before God or a loved one's punishment before God is then lessened by these good works. Now what Luther witnessed was people just paying for it outright. I'll write a check. Like avoiding confession of sin like altogether. And, And it triggers something in Luther as it should for us. That something's not right about this. Like, there's something not right here. You're talking about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and how we can be made right with him. And you got people writing a check. Like, something doesn't seem right here. Like, how can me going to this place in any way, shape, or form make me right before God? which leads him to really begin to contemplate the all-important question of how can a sinner rightly stand before God? It's one he'd been thinking about for a while, but now he's really pressing in on the how. How can a sinner rightly stand before God? It's like, is saying enough prayers and doing enough good deeds really the answer? Or again, bringing it into our current context, Is aligning a certain way politically or socially or morally, is being a good person the answer to being made right with God? No. As the text says this, this being salvation, this being God's grace, this being 
faith, the ability to have faith, is not of our, your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works. Not to the result of anything that we do or can do. There is nothing we do to merit our salvation. Which, friends, is a very humble place to find oneself. Is it not? Like to be in a place of complete inability, like helplessness, like I can't do this. I can't do anything to, to free myself from a situation. That's a very humble place to find oneself, a complete and total dependence on God, not self. A humble place, but a great place to be. But this mindset, this thought flies completely counter to the historical American mindset most of us have had ingrained in us since birth. I mean, since the inception of our country, we've been a strap-on-your-boots-and-earn-it kind of people, right? Well, some of y'all never worn boots a day in your life, but you, you know what I mean. Like, like we're just kind of like, I'm going to earn my paycheck. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do this. And my dad worked in a factory, the same factory for over 40 years. My grandfather was a truck driver. My great-grandfather was a farmer. My brother and I were taught from an early age the importance of hard work. You start something, you finish it. You don't quit. You want something, get a job, go earn it. Work hard, Jeremy, work so what do you mean there's nothing I can do when it comes to my salvation? Surely there's got to be something, right? Look at all the good things that I have done. Surely they outweigh the bad, right? A constant temptation to look inward and outward to find our merit before God. And I think part of the difficulty we have, it sends back to the heart of creation, as God's people from the very beginning were created to work, Adam and Eve before the fall, we're talking Genesis 1 and 2, given the responsibility to work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work being a natural and good part of creation. Remember, after everything God created, saying it was very good Adam and Eve working in the garden was a, a good thing. Their work in the garden was a, to be a God-glorifying thing. But notice what they never have to work at. Notice what they never have to work at. They don't have to work at being God's children. They don't have to work at being God's children any more than a baby has to work to belong to their mom or dad. That, that's who they are. They're created for this relationship. No work involved in becoming God's children. And it's a, nat it's a natural and unbroken and perfect relationship until what? Until they sin. They sin against God. Which does what? It separates them from God. Nothing that they can do to earn their way back into the garden. Nothing they can do to earn their way back into God's presence. Friends, it's the same with us. Because of our sin, we have a complete inability to make ourselves right before God. No amount of good work is ever going to earn us God's favor. 
we have a better chance of walking to Mars than we have of earning the favor of God. It's impossible. We cannot do it. So then how are we saved? We are saved exclusively by God's grace. Exclusively by God's grace, which doesn't flow from the works of man, but from where? Ah, from the heart of God. God's grace being the basis on which our salvation is offered. Grace being the completely unmerited favor of the love of God lavished upon undeserving sinners. Thus the language of this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is what Paul started his letter teaching and highlighting. Grace is that he chose us, not based upon merit of our own, not because he looked down the corridor of time and saw that we would one day choose him. That itself would be a merit. Be, oh, look what my future self chose to do. Oh, my future self was so wise. It's something we could point to ourselves about. Look, I chose God. No, friend, if you chose God, it is only because he first chose you. If you love God, it is only because he first loved you. As scripture tells us, it's his love that makes your love, our love possible. Unmerited grace is that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before we even existed. Grace is that in love he predestined us, us being children of wrath, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Oh, friends, that's grace. It's amazing grace, unmerited grace, which Paul reinforces in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, saying, but if it is by grace, referring to salvation, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen. And even the smallest microcosm of works or self to, to, to bring to our salvation, then grace is gone. Anything that you or others see in you as good or righteous or upstanding plays zero part in earning you God's favor. Zero part in justifying you before God, declaring you right before God. It's all by grace. So then how do we receive God's grace? Like how? Number three, we are recipients of God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So first question here is, who was the you? Who was the we that we're referring to? Who, who received this grace through faith? Scripture tells us it's everyone who believes. Acts 16 and 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Friends, it's to everyone who believes. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Meaning while 
Grace is the basis on which our salvation is given. Faith is the instrument by which it is received. And it's faith that has Jesus as its object. It's faith in the person and work of Christ. Our faith is not a work. Our faith is putting our faith in the one who has done the work. See, while it was Adam who failed in his work, Christ was victorious in his. And while it's through Adam we are born in sin, it's through faith in Christ alone that we are born again born to a new life in Christ, trusting in him alone, his blood to atone for our sin. It's through faith in Christ alone that this is the case. So the grace of God is that, that those he chooses to set his unmerited love upon receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. And in exchange, he receives the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Meaning we who are in Christ are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. His work, his blood. And what evidence do we have that we have received such lavish grace? Faith. Faith in Christ alone. Faith is a means of God's grace and fruit of God's grace. Want to know that you have received God's grace? Are you trusting in Christ alone as your only hope in life and death? We can have confidence that we have received God's grace if and only if we are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death. We don't boast in self, we boast in Christ. We don't trust in self, we trust in Christ. Consider this illustration with me. You've likely seen pictures. Maybe you've heard stories of the acrobat who used to tightrope across Niagara Falls. Anybody seen those, those pictures? 1,100-foot tightrope. 160 feet off above the raging water. Back and forth he went. No. No, no, back and forth he went to make it even more spectacular. <laughs> like he, he'd even like set times where he would go out to elevate the level of danger. He would take a table out with him and cook himself an omelet and have breakfast over the falls on the tightrope. That's just crazy, right? He'd push a wheelbarrow across the tightrope blindfolded took a man, put him on his back, and carried him across the tightrope. This time he placed the man down, put the rider down. He turned to another man in the crowd and he said, hey, do you believe that I can do that with you? And the man said, absolutely. I've just seen you do it. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. To which the tightrope artist responded, well, hop on. How do you think that man responded? Not on your life. Not doing it. And see, to be honest, that's exactly how I would have responded. I'm not riding on, on someone's shoulders across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. That's just nuts. But I think he could do it. Yeah, I think he could do it. I've seen evidence that he did it. The rider the, or the perpetual possible man in the crowd rider witnessed him do it. 
Ah, I believe he could do it. But it's another thing entirely to trust him to do it with you, isn't it? I have no problem with doing it with Jonathan. Fine, go for it. He ain't doing it with me. See, asking, do I believe Jesus can save me from my sins? And saying, yes, I believe he can save me from my sins is a totally different question than asking, do I believe Jesus has saved me from my sins? It's a different question altogether. This was Luther's constant internal battle leading up to the 95 theses. How how can a sinner stand before the judge of heaven and earth? Further study of the Bible leading him to the answer through faith in Christ alone. Not works. Not being like, yeah, I think he could do it. But really trusting him alone as our only hope in life and in death. He's the one who's going to carry us to our final destination. Friend, is that your answer? Are you trusting in Christ to carry you to your final destination? Or are you trusting in other things? Other things that you're, 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 you're doing to, re, to add as a means of merit. If so, you're, you're, you're walking to Mars and you're never going to get there. Now, another reason I would never get on the shoulders of a tightrope artist is not because I I don't trust that he can do it. Again, I I believe that he can do it. But let's be honest, I don't trust myself. What if I lost balance? What if I mess up? What if I fall? And truth be told, that's the way a lot of Christians approach faith as well, with this constant insecurity that's there. Maybe that's you today. What if I mess something up? I mean, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Will he do that to me? But here's the reality of your situation if you are in Christ. You were already a mess when Christ loved you. He went to the cross knowing the mess that you would be. You weren't some arbitrary, what-if type of person. He went with your name in mind. And in love, he bore your sin, your sin upon his shoulders. And by his wounds, you are healed. Friends, he will not drop you. He he has given you the spirit as his guarantee. He will carry everyone who trusts in him as their only hope in life and in death safely to our final destination. Don't stop trusting him. As difficult as this season is and as hard as this season is, don't stop walking by faith. And all of this is really, really good news, is it not? And if we stopped right here, it would be sufficient gospel truth. Sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But if that's true, and it is, and if that's true of you, and I pray that it is, then it will also shape how we live and how we think and how we work. Why? Because if we are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death, we're no longer the same person. 
It's an impossibility for us to be the same person. We're in the world, but we're no longer of the world. So second question, what does it mean to be his workmanship? This is a verse 10 flowing out of, if, if we are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and death and are recipients of his grace, then, number one, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The Greek word for workmanship used here is, is used in the Greek um, Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe uh, creation as God's work. So what we would see in Genesis and God's creating power. And the only other place that Paul ever uses this Greek word in his letters is Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he refers to God's created works. But here he uses it to illustrate the, the recreating that takes place in the life of every single believer. The new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. See, we're not saved just from the, the penalty of our sinful past, but we're remade for a righteous future, created in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, for good works. The old has gone and the new has come, which does affect things like how we live and how we act and how we vote in political elections. Because our new life does what? It changes how we think and think we must. Christians must be a thinking people. We must think deeply about how to engage the world we live in with the gospel. Light in the darkness which means we as Christians are to think much deeper than simple red and blue loyalties. So let me be clear here. If you hear me say, our faith affects how we vote in a political election, and then automatically equate that vote with one party or another, then you're missing the point. One party may represent your values more than another, but neither has placed righteousness as an option on the ballot. And righteousness is the good works we who are in Christ are created for because that's who we now are in Christ. Righteous, declared righteous before God. And no matter who is elected, this doesn't change. Which brings us to number two, we are to walk in the good works which God prepared. What are the works that God has prepared? What are the works that are to define our life and mark us off distinct from the world and everything that we do? They're the works that have been a part of God's plan since before the foundation of the world. Again, chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That, his text, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, righteous. As holy and blameless 
is to describe how we live, how we think, and yes, even how we vote. Why? Because that's who we are in Christ. Holy and blameless. Imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Does it mean that we won't sin? But friends, we won't look like the world. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul then saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Titus 2, 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now notice it doesn't say in some respects, but all respects. Not in some good work, but in every good work. Friends, that does include how we vote. And how we treat those who may vote differently than us. And those who, based upon their conscience, can't bring themselves to vote. See, I care about this election. I'm going to cast my ballot on election day because that's how I roll. Election day, going to be there. But I care more about the public witness of Christians before, during, and after the election than I care about the results of this election. I care more about preserving the the doctrine of justification by faith alone than, than I care about the results of this election. So I know there's been a push large, wide from, from people, for pastors to endorse and What you will never receive from this pulpit is an endorsement of a candidate. Political party affiliation will never be a litmus test for joining this church. But I will tell you how to vote. Just as much as I will tell you how to live in accordance with the word of God. Vote in such a way that aligns with who you are in Christ that leaves your conscience clear, which may very well bring Christians to differing political conclusions here. And if so, let's have healthy, loving, Christ-honoring conversations as to why, as we attempt to take every thought captive by the word of God and walk in good works that we've been born again into. Let me close with a great summary from from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. O church, may these truths 
define how we live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we humbly come before you this morning. Not in our ability, but through our complete inability. We come as recipients of your grace. We come through faith in Christ alone. And we ask you to do what you have already promised and guaranteed you will do. Help us to continue to persevere in the faith. Continue to trust in in you as our only hope in life and in death. May we produce and continue to produce good works as we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, strive to, to live holy and blameless lives before you. And when we don't, convict us of our sin, O Lord. And for those who are with us or watching from home who aren't trusting in Christ as their only hope in life and in death, we ask that you give them faith to see and believe today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And let's sing together of the power of the cross, the power of God's grace. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest.